Key Aero, your aviation destination. Historic Aviation. Hello and welcome to the Flypass podcast. For this episode, we're joined by Liam Shaw, the events and experience coordinator at the Imperial War Museum, Duxford. Hi, Liam. Thanks for joining us. How are you doing today? Yeah, very well indeed. Thanks for taking the time to um, get hold of us and have a chat. Yeah, no problem. I mean, obviously, you're a friend of the magazines and you've known us for years, but as a relative newcomer to the team, I first met you the day before the recent Battle of Britain air show, where you were very kind enough to uh, give us a little bit of time and wander around and show us some of the sites. So, uh, Maybe start by telling the readers a little bit about what it is you do there. Yeah, absolutely. So as you say, I'm the Events and Experiences Coordinator, or one of uh, a team within our commercial department. Um, My main role is to put our collection out there to allow people to experience it in a slightly different way. You can come to the museum any day of the week, really, and look at our fantastic collection, our aircraft, our exhibits, even the site itself, which is historic in its own right. But we've started to try to open up some of that collection to be more accessible to the public. So we've opened up some cockpits. We can talk about that in a moment. But we're also trying to look at the enthusiast market to try to Mm. encourage them to come and to get a different feel of what Duxford has to offer for them as well. I mean, on the day of our visit, you were very kind enough to wangle us a bit of time in the cockpit, the Vulcan. I mean, that's one of your cockpit doors that you were alluded to just now. So maybe talk to us a little bit about that, how that came about. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's one of those sort of situations pre-pandemic. We were looking at how we can open our collection up to the public. And we looked at the options to open some of our aircraft. Duxford, obviously, is very well known for its aircraft. So it made sense that that would be something we wanted to look at. And obviously, certain aircraft through the generations have had far more status of becoming an idol or or a unique item or whatever it might be so key on our list really was to look at something that would appeal and uh, the Vulcan was definitely going to be up there on that list it also had the advantage of coming with its own ladder which which definitely helped things and it's relatively spacious if you compare it to something of of an older vintage or or otherwise so we we had a look at the Vulcan and uh, amongst others to be able to open them up and to allow the public to get inside take a seat in the quite literally in the pilot's seat and and with the period of sort of lockdown that we went through that gave us quite a good opportunity to look at how we could run this experience how we could make it stand out how people could have a really good experience from it and we came up with a format of giving everyone around about 40 minutes which would be a historical talk followed by 20 minutes where they can kind of go where they like in the cockpit and it's proved really quite popular as I say we, we run it at the moment between five and six dates in the month and we're pretty much selling out every one of those dates going forwards we've just released our dates through to December so there are some of some availability but opening up the Vulcan has been great because it didn't take a huge amount of work in terms of as I say actually opening it but it has allowed us to start showing part of our collection in a way that we really haven't done up to this point and the feedback we've had is great people sitting in the cockpit and coming out with that Vulcan smell that that uh, oil leather sweat who knows what else is up in that cockpit but you know (laughs) you only have to spend uh, and uh, you may well have experienced it yourself last Friday but just a few minutes in there and you do come out with a 
a slight, you know, smell of nostalgia. <laughs> it kind of hits home as well is how well the crews must have had to have got on with each other because to be in such an enclosed cockpit for such a long period of time as they would have been, you'd have to get on with all your crewmates, wouldn't you? Oh, I absolutely think so. I mean, the Vulcan cockpit for such a large aircraft is a very small space, as you've seen. The pilot and co-pilot are in very close proximity. I mean, they're virtually touching shoulders in their ejection seats up the front. Obviously, they all had quite a high workload, but at the same time, you're quite right. I think they'd have needed to get on extremely well. And I think it's also allowing people to look inside the likes of the Vulcan gives people that view that from the outside, you'd think it would be a bit more spacious. But actually getting in and looking at that space that's available exactly brings it home as you've said that the crew would have had to get on well you know close proximity for potentially very long and on occasions very dangerous potential flight yeah i think it's what hit home is they must have made aircraft for a slightly different generation before the fast food and you know eat what you want culture sort of hit home but it was absolutely tiny in there i mean even just squeezing between the seats to get into the pilot seat is it's not easy it's not at all i mean there were some obviously some handy things like fold up armrests and a fold away fuel transfer tray between the seats up front. A little bit more space for the guys in the back, but that's balanced out by the fact they didn't have ejector seats. So, you know, that wasn't quite so um, comforting maybe. And although it's based around a crew of five, on occasions, some of the long away day missions that they would go, fly to Canada or otherwise, there might have been up to seven people in that cockpit. And that really is starting to get, you know, get very cramped at that point. And so you have to be fairly nimble to even just get up the ladder into the cockpit itself. I mean, how does that work with some of the people you must be having come into experience the cockpit tours these days? Are you getting like an older generation who may have flown on the Vulcan or worked on them? Yeah, it's, it's actually been a really sort of interesting dynamic. We were expecting the majority of the people coming would be, as a core, you know, quite heavily involved aviation enthusiasts, certainly with some Vulcan interest, maybe, you know, extreme Vulcan interest and that they were just going to be looking for having a look in the cockpit or otherwise but we've actually found that possibly fueled by the flying Vulcan up to sort of six years ago you know that brought the Vulcan to another generation and we have had ex-Vulcan crew or XV bomber crew air and ground crew should I say who have come along to have a look inside you know sort of re-familiarize themselves but we've had people who their only knowledge of the Vulcan was they once saw it at a seafront air show, you know, 10 years ago, eight years ago, whatever it might have been. And they just thought, oh, we were coming to Duxford. We saw we could sit in it and we thought we'd have a look. And I think it's one of those things that even those who think they know the Vulcan, you know, when you actually sit in there, when you get inside, as you say, those ladders are small. It's pretty dark. You know, I mean, it's OK. It's in a hangar and we've got some lights in the cockpit, but it is a pretty dark environment. And I was liking the first bit, you know, climbing up the crew ladder is, is a bit like climbing up a loft ladder. But once you're inside, it's like being in, you know, well, certainly not like in a loft up there. It's a, it's a very odd sort of space. And as you say, designed for a very different generation. I mean, you know, 11 and a half years separate the prototype Vulcan from the prototype Lancaster, which I think is always quite an incredible move forwards in technology. But on top of that, ergonomics and things like that that we associate now you know you wouldn't get in a car if you couldn't reach every single control and button in the Vulcan you'd have been stretching yourself if you had to select a certain thing and it required manpower probably a Vulcan if such a thing were to be designed today you wouldn't need five people to fly that 
because computers are doing a lot of that work. I suppose as well with the Vulcan, as I say, it was designed in an era when it just had one specific task and that was it, you know, to deliver its payload and possibly not even that much regard to the crew. So creature comforts not as important as they might be today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're absolutely right. It was designed, I always think, interestingly, the government specification for what led to the Vulcan and the Victor and the Valiant as well, that was actually issued shortly before the government had decided to pursue their own atomic weapon. Um, (laughs) So you're creating an aircraft that's going to deliver this weapon without the decision that you're even going to make one, which I think is quite an interesting thing to start with. And you can see it in its lineage going back to the Lancaster as well, that crew comfort is not really the prime consideration with these aircraft. I'm probably not saying that necessarily sitting in a Eurofighter Typhoon for, you know, hours on end is that comfortable. But with all the computer aids and things, you know, a lot of the mundane stuff is taken out of there, whereas the Vulcan was still pretty much a hands-on aircraft. And I think I probably pointed out when we were in the cockpit, you know, the couple of nods to creature comforts in there like the can warmer and the toilet facilities are incredibly basic i mean they do exist but they're you know they're not the sort of thing that you would expect on a long-haul flight for example yet these guys with a very very dangerous job to do were not given a huge amount to have those comforts really and your vulcan as i remember you saying when we had our little talk was it's quite an interesting aircraft in its own right of how complete it is and how original it is from when it was in service yeah, absolutely. So our Vulcan is a Vulcan B2. So it's sort of learned a few things from the first production Vulcan. So it's a later version anyway. As most Vulcans, and I always say this, it doesn't have the most interesting history. You know, it didn't drop any bombs in anger. It didn't do things like that. But thank goodness it didn't, because obviously its predominant job is probably unthinkable, really. You know, if it had had to actually drop an explosive weapon of the power that it was capable of, that could have been and would have been world changing. So in one respect, we're quite glad it didn't have a (laughs) significant sort of wartime or active history. But like a lot of Vulcans, it was passed around the different squadrons, the different wings. So lots of people would have flown it in lots of different places. And our Vulcan was donated to the museum by the RAF. And it was given to us in the year that the Vulcan was due to come out of service. So the planned out-of-service date for the Vulcan bomber fleet was 1982, and our Vulcan arrived with us around about the middle of March 1982. It came straight from a squadron, so as you say, it's very original. We've never really had to do any work to it. A lot of other Vulcans have had remedial work, and, and maybe they didn't have the aircraft quite as complete when it was delivered as we were lucky enough to have. So our aircraft, as I say, is very complete. You know, there's pretty much everything in there that was in there when it was in service. But it was delivered to us, uh, as I say, in March 1982. And the pilot in charge of the aircraft on the day it was delivered was uh, a gentleman by the name of Martin Withers. Now, Martin Withers obviously goes on to a little bit of fame not that far after his delivery of our Vulcan when he delivers the first live wartime drop let's call it that by a Vulcan when he unloads his bomb load over Port Stanley on the Falkland Islands so he actually delivers our Vulcan a couple of weeks before the Argentinian invasion of the Falklands and then goes on to be the pilot in charge on Black Buck 1 the first and at the time longest bombing raid in history flying from Ascension Island and obviously the story of that Vulcan raid is huge 
But as I say, I, I always find it quite amazing that particular gentleman doing that mission as he did took the Vulcan to war for the very first time in the year that it was being retired. And proof of that is that we were given one because they were coming out of service. Our Vulcan then has a slight claim to fame to the Falklands conflict because the RAF do come and borrow a few bits back to keep some of their Vulcan fleet. And we believe our fuel probe went on to either a Hercules or a Nimrod for the duration of that. But we got one back eventually. But as you say, it was very original. And it was one of the, in fact, I think it was the last Vulcan to go through the manufacturer's upgrade program. So what that meant was that when it was delivered back to the squadron, no other Vulcans went through that. So it was the most up-to-date Vulcan at sort of manufacturer's level, at least, when it came out of service. I mean, you clearly know your onions when it comes to Vulcan. Was this something you were passionate about before you started doing the cockpit tours, or have you just sort of slowly increased your knowledge of the aircraft? So, yeah, I mean, I think my personal interest generally has always been predominantly, at least, sort of Second World War aviation, you know, um, first association with Duxford in a meaningful way, I suppose, was attending Flying Legends in 1997. So obviously it was all about that sort of historic propeller-driven aircraft. But jets have always been interesting, certainly that era of classic British jets, you know, things like the Meteor, the Hunter, the Lightning and, and, and the Vulcan and the like. It's not been distant enough from the Second World War for me to have not had the interest, but maybe, yes, the knowledge wasn't quite as strong as as some of the the earlier generation. But attending air shows, you know, used to see hunters and things and, and just naturally, you know, you pick up a book here and you watch a documentary there. So, you know, things start to go in. But certainly since we've run the Vulcan experience at Duxford, the background knowledge of what our aircraft did and really how the Vulcan fleet evolved over that period is something that I'm a lot more familiar with now than maybe, you know, a couple of years ago in that regard, you know, just to look at the development within its frontline lifespan from Britain's nuclear deterrent through to essentially a conventional bomber in the twilight year of its RAF service. I mean, doing what you do as well, I mean, the fact that you can climb into the Vulcan, it keeps history alive in a different way because it's not just dead history that's behind a barrier. It's something you say you can climb in it. You can smell it, you can touch it, you can experience it. Absolutely, yeah. And um, what I think with the Vulcan particularly, but really any aircraft, in the same way that you can experience or you get a different feeling for, let's say, a, a battlefield, if you can actually go and actually look at where it took place. You know, I'm very fortunate a couple of times been to the sort of the Normandy battlefront and things like that. When you can see, you know, the action that took place against a particular bunker or across a particular stretch of beach or whatever, that brings what you might have read, you know, that brings it home. And I think that's very much the case. You know, if you can actually sit or stand in the space where these crews have stood beforehand, you know, it gives you a real good sense of the conditions they were operating in, how they were expected to go to war, basically. And as you say, it stops it being just a big lump of metal the other side of a little red rope it brings in the human aspect i suppose the human story the human drama to how that aircraft came about and what it did I mean, we were saying before we hit record as well that even just your office space the history that where you work is something that actually if you're into world war ii as you clearly are it kind of boggles the mind to think that you're in the same office as the station commander absolutely yeah so my office at duxford is now in what was 
the station headquarters. And I suppose, you know, we all like to think it probably still is because, you know, that's where all the hard work gets done these days still, obviously. And yeah, my office is, well, through an adjoining door or two would have been where the likes of Woody Woodhall would have sat during the Battle of Britain, being in charge of Duxford in, you know, in the summer of 1940. And I'm sitting in an office a couple of doors away. Duxford itself is obviously an incredibly historic and, you know, in general terms, an original airfield. And it's always interesting when we talk about Duxford as a site, because its development began at the end of the First World War as a training station, and it opened towards the end of the First World War. So we're over 100 years old as a site. But the development across that period is very difficult to see, because some of the First World War buildings, other than the three main hangars, which are very obvious and very large, some of the other First World War buildings have been knocked down over the years, you know, even during the sort of the 30s when there was this expansion of the site. And the 30s is when we saw where my office is now, but the headquarters was built. And really, most of the infrastructure that you see at Duxford, with the exception of those hangars, most of it dates back to that sort of 30s period running up to the Second World War. But then, of course, after the Battle of Britain and then the Americans spent a couple of years at Duxford as well with the 78th Fighter Group. Mm -hmm. And when they left and the RAF moved back in, it was the early jet age. So we had things like the Meteor came into service and eventually was based at Duxford. So things had to be changed. They had to put down concrete taxiways, hard runways, Mm -hmm. operational pans and things like this. So when you look at Duxford today, it tells a story of over 100 years of development. There's no one part of the site that you can say, well, that's 100 years old, or that's from the 50s, or that's from the 60s. Because, you know, Duxford was a constantly changing entity from, you know, sort of 1917, really to the present day. And as I say, the historical significance of working there is never, thankfully, never lost on me. I, uh, especially on the occasions when we're not open to the public, certain days or certain evenings you leave your office and you just think what was someone doing here 80 years ago or you know 100 years ago or whatever you know it's quite a yeah quite a humbling experience that it's a palpable sense of history just walking around the place I think so to walk around it the evening when there's no one else there must be say, quite quite an experience absolutely yeah I mean I remember I mean years and years ago in a previous role I had at Duxford I remember sitting got to work early site didn't open till 10 o'clock I had a bit of time made myself a cup of tea. I happened to be reading Geoffrey Wellham's First Light at the time. And I sat on a deck chair on the bit of grass, no one else around me, deck chair, cup of tea and a book, reading about Geoffrey Wellham in the Battle of Britain, dawn readiness, first light and all that. And uh, in the distance, I heard the cough of a Merlin and one of the private partners had taken a Spitfire out just for a ground run. And I'm sitting there on a Battle of Britain airfield reading a book about a Battle of Britain pilot in probably what was a very old deck chair as well now I think about it with a spitfire running up not a soul around you know it's quite um, emotive quite stirring sometimes and that brings us nicely into spitfires because it's not just a Vulcan that you can sit in at Duxbury that you also have your spitfires N3200 that you're allowed to sit in it is indeed yeah so again when we looked at the option of what aircraft would people want to sit in how can you not want to sit in a Spitfire? I think that's the uh, <laughs> that's the that's the ultimate question, isn't it? And within our collection, we don't have any operational or, or airworthy aircraft, with the exception of our Spitfire. And that particular Spitfire, as you say, is N three two hundred, and it's 
a very original restoration. And it's a restoration because it was actually lost over France on the 26th of May 1940. So it now is fully airworthy, regularly flying over Duxford and taking part in our events and our air shows and the like. But we thought, what are the chances are of using this aircraft with its significant history? But the fact that unlike the Vulcan cockpit and and otherwise, the Spitfire is still a live aeroplane. So it has a, a way of sort of crossing that history. So we've got historical aspect of it being a Spitfire that flew in 1940. But we've got the means to bring that story up to date by the fact that some days we're putting people in the cockpit and the engine, metaphorically at least, is still warm from the previous days flying, you know. And it's one of those really special things to allow someone to sit in a Spitfire. And you give them that sense of history by the story, but also the sense of responsibility. You know, it is a case you empty all your pockets. You're not allowed to get in there with any loose items because that could be very dangerous to a future flight, a uh, future pilot, for example. But we also have the third aspect. It's not just a Spitfire that flew in 1940, and it's not just a Spitfire that still flies. But when it was delivered to the RAF via a maintenance unit, its first and indeed only operational squadron was number 19 squadron. And 19 Squadron had been based at Duxford for quite a number of years. They bought the Gloucester Gauntlet into service and various other things. And despite the squadron having a little bit of a reputation, under the leadership of Henry Cousins, they managed to convince the Air Ministry that it's number 19 Squadron and RAF Duxford that should have the first Spitfires. So on the 4th of August 1938, those first Spitfires are delivered to Duxford. So there have been Spitfires beforehand, but this is the first time that they're with an operational squadron. And although our Spitfire wasn't one of the first, it does come to 19 Squadron in 1939, early 1940. And when it's delivered, it very likely would have lived in the hangar where we keep it now. Now, that's Hangar 4 at Duxford or the Battle of Britain exhibition on the site maps. And that was the home to 19 Squadron in the sort of pre-Battle of Britain period. although. It flew forward and it was lost over France. Its home was Duxford. Its squadron was Duxford. It was being flown on the day it was lost by the squadron leader of 19 Squadron. So you've got this real link to the first Spitfire squadron. And to the best of my knowledge, and I always say to the best of my knowledge, I can't guarantee it, but I don't think there are any other operational, not just Spitfires, but but aircraft of any type flying anywhere in the world that still operate from their original wartime base, which I think is, you know, I don't like the word unique, but I think on this occasion, it's pretty close to unique. We've got 15 or so other Spitfires owned by private partners at Duxford. Not another one of those ever operated from Duxford except in civilian hands, whereas the one that we're allowed to allow people access to, to sit in, to experience, is very, very significant to us, but also as a historical item as well. I'm pretty biased anyway. I think N3200 is my absolute favourite example of a Spitfire ever. And Spitfire is my favourite aeroplanes. And just the history behind it and the beauty of the Mark 1 is just... And I know there were better Spitfires, but for me, that that just sums it up. And the chance you can sit in it, it's not very inexpensive to do so either. I think it's as experiences go, it's a very affordable thing you can do. Yeah, I mean, we, we as with everything that we do here, obviously, you know, there's a trade-off, you know, in an ideal world, we'd have everything open for free and, you know, everyone would come and have a look at everything. Unfortunately, not just 
because of the, of the sort of pandemic and otherwise. But obviously, there has to be a trade-off. The aeroplane itself needs a lot of maintenance, certainly in the case of the, obviously the Spitfire. The more it flies, the more work it needs. So there is a, you know, there's a trade-off there. So we came up with a price for people to be able to sit in it, which we think certainly for the historical significance and the special circumstances we think was okay. And it's absolutely proved to be right. We've not had anyone who's come and said, oh, I'd, you know, that was too much for me or, or whatever. And we've also tried with both this and the Vulcan, there was a real thought that we didn't want it to feel like a treadmill. We didn't want someone to come along, kick him in the cockpit. Then, you know, they barely get in and we're telling them to get out because someone else is waiting. So we've structured it. So all of the experiences begin with a 20 minute historical background talk we can tailor that to people's personal knowledge base and interest so if they already know generally about the spitfire we'll spend a bit more time on some specifics if they're a complete novice to the subject we'll you know give them a, a history of the spitfire from day one so we can tailor that around a little bit but once they've had that we then give them a really good solid 20 minutes in the cockpit and the experience generally even with the Vulcan there's a little bit more to see but people get in and 20 minutes seems just about the right sort of time it's not too little that you can't take everything in but it's not too long that you're just sitting there for the sake of it and I very fortunately sit in the Spitfire occasionally myself just to remind myself what it looks like and just to sit in it even if it was just for a few minutes it gives you a real sense of what it must have been like without obviously being shot at or being cold or actually flying it but as I say most people you know they get in and they think right you know that's brilliant I've had my experience and you know a lot of people it's it's like I never thought I'd be able to sit in a an airworthy Spitfire obviously it's vastly different to the experience you get if you go flying in one but the point is to have the time and to really get to look at and we'll let you move the controls you know so you can feel how light those controls are the rudder pedals and, and moving the elevators and the ailerons around and everyone will of course, they like to have a look at the uh, at the gun button to fire as well. That's a, a crucial part of the sitting experience. But as I say, it seems to be really popular and it's gone down really well. I mean, that's one of the things I love about Ducks. Every time I've been, there seems to be something different happening. Either something that's going up for an air test that's you know related to anything else you guys do. But there's always something changing. There's always a different dynamic no matter what day you go. Yeah, I think, you know, I don't think there's any way we'd, we'd say it otherwise. But I mean, it changes with the seasons. It doesn't quite have leaves falling from the hangars, but the work that goes on inside the buildings does change. The private partners, obviously, they go mostly into a period of sort of winter hibernation. The aircraft start coming apart, panels come off, you know, winter servicing, which means if you come in the winter, certainly with, as I say, the private partners, you're more likely to see aircraft in the sort of the bare bones down to maintenance. The museum's collection we are always trying to, you know, to keep it fairly fresh. You know, last year we revamped the Battle of Britain hangar to coincide with last year's Battle of Britain anniversary. And also that went hand in hand with the reopening of the ops block as well. So the ops block had been restored and was looking a bit tired. And they took the opportunity to basically interpret it a lot better. There's some video in there now. There's some cabinets with items of those who served at Duxford during the Battle of Britain. and the actual operations room space has also been sort of tidied up and, and everything these things obviously cost a lot of money otherwise we do them a lot more often but as I say we try to keep everything as up to date and fresh as possible 
And although a few years ago I'm with RAF having hundreds of types in their inventory, there was a lot of aircraft they could donate or give us. Nowadays, they've only got a small handful of frontline types. So we're fortunate that we got given, there was an Army Western Lynx not that long ago, and we've got a Tornado GR4. So, you know, we still do get some newer items into the collection, fewer probably than we used to. And it's really then it's about looking after what we've got and making sure that they are, where possible at least, in the best condition for the public to look at. Uh, the next one that's going to look uh, stunning when it's finished will be our Victor DK1 when it's finished. It comes out of Hangar 5. Which, looking at that last time I saw it, it was like, I, I don't even know where you'd start to restore something like that. There's so many bits and pieces on it, so many wires, tubes. But, but you say you've got guys who know how to do it. Absolutely. And they've really done a, a fantastic job on it so far. And I, I can't wait to see the final results, but it's been a long slog for them. Uh, if somebody wants to know a bit more about Duck Set, about things that you've got going on or, you know, even just visiting, where can we direct them towards your website? Would that be your starting point? Yeah. So our website is a one-stop shop for anything Imperial War Museum, really. You can visit each of the branches by an individual subsection of the website. We've got a What's On page on the Duxford page, for example, and on there you'll find details of shameless plug for the Vulcan or the Spitfire cockpits. We also have a fairly regular, what we call inside view of the Lancaster, which is a 45 minute talk. So that the actual historical side is a bit more detailed, but you get a glimpse inside the back of the Lancaster. It's not right up to the cockpit for all sorts of conservation and health and safety reasons. But it, it, again, it's a way of getting inside our collection in a reasonable way. So what's on page will give you all of that information. But obviously on there, we've got things like our flying days. We've got another flying day coming up, 9th of October, I think, and that's the final one for the year. And we've got really good lineup for that, which I'm, uh, I'm quite excited to see myself. But on top of that, our website is a really good place to go and have a look because a lot of our photographic and video archive has been digitized. So actually, you can use our website to look through some of our collection. So even if you can't physically come in to one of our branches and you know maybe see a, an item on the wall or a, an exhibit in front of you, a lot of it is available to learn about and look at online. And our digital engagement team have also started to put out via a YouTube channel a regular in-depth look at a particular subject. And we've so far, I think we've had Lancaster, Vulcan, Mosquito, and there's some more in the pipeline coming out as well. So Again, it's just some extra free content for those who, who can't come in to see us, but also to give a little bit of a taster of what our collection is and what we've got to offer. Well, I can totally say hand on heart that the Vulcan tour is worth entrance alone. I mean, it, I think it's brilliant. So I'm looking forward to the Spitfire one at some point. And I think we'll leave it there. So thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you very much for your time. This has been a podcast from Key Aero, your aviation destination. Remember, visit www.key.aero for more of the same. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to catch up with you again soon.